we've learned some of the tools that the Buddha taught to help liberate ourselves. Uh, these tools that help are meant to help bring a, a kind of protection to us. And you can see how uh, deeply liberating these tools are. When we go out into the world, uh, we get to apply the tools that we've learned on the retreat. And it's, it's a real gift to be able to have not just the mindfulness tools as a protection in this world, but also loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So if you're having trouble with mindfulness, you can try loving-kindness <laughs> or compassion. And if you're having trouble with compassion, you can try mindfulness or empathetic joy. It's like um, you have more skillful means. When we learn the phrase, may I or may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, I think on a retreat we get a better sense of the power of what it feels like to be safe and protected from greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion, the reaction to the joy and sorrow in this world that is a very conditioned response to the pain and pleasure in the world, uh, we slowly start to replace that defense system with mindfulness, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. So it's just, it's a matter of time of applying these practices on the retreat and then in daily life. Uh, So these practices are a quality of attention that helps us change the conditioned way that we relate to things as they are. And they enable us to live a life of greater freedom and care. This is a a poem by Pablo Neruda. And he had um, written a few books that were left on his desk that were found after he died. He died of cancer. He says in this poem, We the mortals touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and to say goodbye. That's the spiritual journey that us mortals have to learn to love and to say goodbye with each other, each moment. What I've learned over my life so far of practice is to try to equally value love and wisdom. To love and say goodbye uh, is really our deep spiritual achievement. Love is the feeling or experience of feeling interconnected with everything. It's a feeling of solidarity with all beings. And it's very healing, this experience of union with all. 
and we understand, the love has understanding that duality or separation isn't true. Uh, So it's love with understanding. Wisdom, which often flows out of the mindfulness practice, uh, means deeply seeing uh, that we live as mortals in this world of change and facing the truth of that, meaning that we never know what's going to happen. And that when we look at experience very closely, we see that it's insubstantial. So understanding that experience is like a dream, that it's ephemeral or insubstantial, helps us to understand that nothing's worth holding on to. You can see that these perspectives are very different of love and wisdom, and yet they're both (coughs) part of the journey, and they're both important. Wisdom practice often leads us to value don't know mind. I know one of the most important teachings I've learned in this practice is to learn to be okay with not knowing, with uncertainty. Uh, And if we apply it to the truth that each moment really is changing, then mindfulness really does become a pure exploration. When we have enough concentration so that the attention is still enough to explore life as it is, then don't know mind or the ability to be okay with uncertainty is totally important because we never know what the next moment really will be. And and the mindfulness gives us the courage and the strength and protection to face that and to, to learn from it. When I was in Burma this time, this last February, I heard a story about a teacher that I, that I had met here in 1979, Mahasi Saido. And he is a very beloved and respected, was a very respected and beloved teacher in Burma and the head of the lineage uh, that we teach. And he was a great scholar as well as a great practitioner, and also was very quiet, very silent. And I heard that uh, right before he died, someone was with him. He was laying down, and he didn't feel well. Uh, So he laid down, and it happened that he had a massive stroke, and he died very quickly. And right, right after this massive stroke, just before he died, he said one thing. Oh, a new sensation. (laughs) And he died. That's pretty cooled out. Oh, a new sensation. I thought that was great. (laughs) There's a Zen master that was dying, and his disciples asked him to write a death verse 
but he didn't want to. He said, I have no last words. But they pleaded with him, so he took up his brush and wrote the character for Dream and passed away. It's our destiny to love and to say goodbye as mortals. And our practice is is to have that um, motivation and intention to deeply understand. In fact, the mindfulness practice is all the intention to understand rather than to judge. Over and over, bringing ourselves back to remember, (laughs) to renounce, renounce believing the judgment and uh, clarifying this, understa- this intention to understand. So it's not that the judgment and the comparing won't occur, but one sees clearly that one can have a deeper motivation and try to understand. Uh, so, so much of the practice is remembering, remembering to come back, remembering to come back, and that's that anchoring, anchoring in the present moment in whatever way we can. On a retreat, you get some continuity with this. And when we go back out into the world, sometimes we lose that continuity. Uh, So sometimes we're afraid of going back out in the world because if we've been through it, we know the gaps between remembering will probably start (laughs) to get longer. Uh, And it's it's hard for us. Uh, So please try to remember that uh, I, you know, being on retreat, we're very protected. You know, we're not going to the grocery store. We're not doing the laundry. We're not going to the bank. We're not doing the job. Uh, All of the things we do for survival, all the things we do, the busy doing, 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 we get that chance to let it go and to see clearly. Uh, So you will start forgetting. And that's okay. It's like then... Concentration depends on momentum. And there's always fear with concentration because there's that sense that we're going to lose it. But with mindfulness, we can always recover it. It's just a moment of remembering. And even if it might be a little bit longer between the moments of mindfulness, it'll come back. You'll bounce back. I don't think there's any of us that are going back to being a monk or a nun in this room. I think most everyone is going back to being a householder. Maybe a few are staying here at IMS. Uh, Our householder life isn't as protected as a monastery, and that most of us are choosing not to be monks and nuns. Maybe we have some distant uh, idea that we'd like to be hermits somewhere for the rest of our lives because this is such an incredible way of life. Uh, But it seems karmically that a lot of us are going in and out of retreat, in and out of retreat. And it's, it's like we're bridging our modern life and this ancient way of life. Uh, Maybe we're meant to be trying to heal the culture with this. When Sayada Upandita was with us in Hawaii this time, when we were driving um, through traffic, uh, he saw somebody run a red light. And he said, (laughs) he said, (laughs) 
<laughs> he said, Americans really like the color green. <laughs> he said, Americans don't like the color red. And, you know, it's just like sometimes it takes somebody from another culture <laughs> to really just say it that simply. It wasn't judgmental. It was like, Americans don't like the color red. You know, we don't like to have to slow down and break and stop and be careful. And uh, It was just, so remember that when you go out. <laughs> but we really do need to slow down. You know, and anything we can do to help our culture generally slow down is a great gift to the world. You know, when you're mindful, the whole ambiance around you will be affected. When you get all caught up and reactive, the ambiance around you will be reactive. All of us would recommend a daily practice. I mean, it's just... (laughs) part of survival, really, in the world. And whether you can establish an hour a day of sitting, or an hour a day of walking, or 45 minutes, um, of course we won't say five minutes a day. You know, of course we're going to say, at least try to get a half hour. 45 minutes is better. An hour is better. And maybe for you, the sitting won't be what grounds you. Maybe it will be a silent walk. Uh, But it's something. It's something that you take the time to be quiet. The form of it isn't as important as just taking non-talking, non-bombardment time. Valuing our spiritual life um, is really important because we often don't get the support uh, from other people to say, you know, you really need some quiet time you know, why don't you, even though I have enormous needs and wants and demands for you, go ahead. You know, how many people say that to you? <laughs> they don't want you to take the quiet time, usually. They want you to do what they want you to do now. Uh, so that's the green light, um, and we have to maybe have the red light. And make. Uh, sometimes we have to be kind of... Um, Ruthless. Soon here at IMS there'll be a young adult retreat, and the way we set it up, there's about 61 young adults coming. Uh, and it's a, it's a different retreat in that there's sitting and walking in silence, but then there's a discussion group that they stay with for the retreat. And then you know, sitting, walking, <laughs> lunch, uh, some uh, sitting, walking, other activity, mindful, a few mindful activities, another discussion group eventually. So there's about two discussion groups a day. And what they're so fortunate to me that they have a retreat set up where very quickly they learn the, the um, connection between intimacy with themselves or connection with themselves in the silence and being able to be intimate with each other. You know, it's like a gift that they get very quickly. um, And they learn a lot about the mindfulness in the the discussion group and then going back to sit. Uh, You can have a taste of that if you talk today. How powerful speech is, how much energy 
it really takes uh, and the impact it has. Uh, so silence, you can see, if some silence each day is so important. And if you can't get it, just remember before you go to sleep at night, you don't have to go off into the dreamland or um, thinking uh, so much. You can do a little metta and mindfulness before you go to sleep. For many years, I kept my hand on my abdomen and would just feel that rising and falling there uh, when I would lay down. Maybe the mindfulness wouldn't last forever, but there's something about at least bringing it in then. There's so much possibility for creativity with bringing these practices, these monastic practices, out into the world. We'll take uh, some question and answers tomorrow in terms of details about that. Uh, But you can see the possibilities are endless just in terms of a daily sitting practice. You could do 10 minutes of loving kindness and the rest, you know, mindfulness. Or you could do five minutes of (laughs) mudita and five minutes of metta uh, and then the rest mindfulness. Or maybe you'll do loving kindness in your daily practice for the next year. See, it's very, uh, you can be very creative and learn to kind of go where you feel really connected and trust that. But I recommend not just trying to make something up every second, every day. It gets too confusing. And if we try to do too much, if we leave here thinking I'm going to do this and this and this and and take uh, a lot of hours in the day doing it, we often give up and don't do anything. So so realistically, kind of get a sense of your life and see what you could realistically do. Because you don't want to add more stress into an already usually stressful life. You try to bring in something that will help balance, but not make it impossible. But it is possible to do some daily practice. And some people, when they're exercising, they do the Brahma Viharas. You know, it's, it's some people waiting in an elevator every day. That's their touchstone. You know, I love it when you're waiting for elevators because everybody looks up and they look down. and It's just such a strange human experience. Uh, <laughs> and if you remember to do, you know, at least some compassion or metta or something, it's great. I know for many years, um, places like malls and big supermarkets, I would feel very alienated in. Uh, and when I learned the Brahma Vihara practices, it helped me to shift from kind of grumbling through these places that I found so, at the least, unheart, <laughs> unheart-like. You know, they're so uh, unindividual. Um, to a place where I would get over that aversion or irritation and make connections with people anyway. So there's certain people in the grocery store, it's a huge grocery store across the highway five minutes from our house. Um, And there's certain people in there that over the years I've been doing so much practice of loving kindness for that when I go in, it's like I'm back in the fam, you know, and they don't know that. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, hi, you know, and (laughs) I'm so happy to see them. They're not that happy to see me. But that doesn't matter. It's just that feeling of being connected in again.
And sometimes there's a big Costco that sometimes I have to go to near my house. And again, I used to relate to it as such a alienating place. And now I go in there and I just feel all the spaciousness, <laughs> like, oh, solitude. You know, no one knows me. I just go through the little aisles mindfully. It's, it's wonderful. It's, you can really shift your relationship. Maybe for you it's not these kind of places, but I'm certain that there are places in life that you might find difficult. Maybe it's traffic. Uh, but if you know the places where you start to tighten up and start not being there, this is what I mean. Instead of disappearing, uh, try these practices, even if it's just for a while. And then you go back to staring at the, um, you know, all those magazines, the grocery store lines. You know, sometimes I pick them up and read them so I don't have to wait. Well, you know, they're not that great. <laughs> You know, and, and it's actually, I find, much more useful to be doing some compassion practice or something. So if you feel yourself drawn into the Inquirer, you know, <laughs> or, or Vogue, or, you know, whatever, uh, popular mechanics, uh, just try pulling yourself out and noticing that there's other options. You know, this is what the tools are that we're learning. There was a young adult last year that, um, right after the retreat, she was a nanny for three small children for the summer. Uh, and I think it was a bit much, uh, you know, for her. She, I think she was 14 um, and had this, you know, responsibility for these three young children. And at nighttime, she'd get very frustrated because they wouldn't go to sleep uh, or go to bed. Uh, so she started making a bargain with them that she would teach them the loving-kindness practice and then do the loving-kindness chant if they get in bed. And it worked. <laughs> they loved it. They loved doing the loving-kindness practice, and they loved the chant. And they would keep, you know, she'd hear them in the daytime sort of going, Pujami! Pati Patiya! You know, they, actually, those were their two favorite words, Pujami and Pati Patiya. So this, she was very creative. And it, it's really lovely to see that there are these tools rather than something that um, feels like we should do it or that there are certain times we should do these practices rather than seeing that you can bring them in in times where you might not have normally thought of it. So that's what I mean by the creativity. Just trying to watch the time here. <laughs> yeah. The other um, aspect of the practice I wanted to talk about is the vastness of it all. You know, so I'm talking about mindfulness, um, the Brahma Viharas, uh, but what about generosity or morality, non harming, or what about? forgiveness, or, you know, the list just goes on and on. Patience, there's, there's so much vastness to our spiritual practice. Uh, it's not just these tools that we're learning. There are many, many, many practices. 
so it, I just wanted to mention and talk about a few of them. The Buddha said in terms of generosity that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't let m- one meal go by without sharing it. And it's like, that's such a teaching in and of itself. Uh, someone gave me a chocolate today, and um, right before the talk, I ate half of it and gave the rest to the, all the beings. You know, I, who knows who got it? But in my backyard, <laughs> they're so used to me throwing things out there that I sort of figure that there's probably a raffle or a lottery going on out there. You know, and I throw something out, and the chipmunks and the squirrels <laughs> and the woodchucks and the ants, and everybody might be diving for it. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll hear a little being. I don't throw out a lot, but just some little tidbit. Um, that's my only way when I'm here to share food. When I'm home, I have other opportunities. But it's that basic. Uh, and if you, if you think about generosity, it's not so much um, who is receiving it, but it's what it does for us. It's that splitting the chocolate, even though <laughs> I really want the whole thing. <laughs> you know, it's like that the meaning of generosity is letting go. And so that there's that, it's what it's doing for our heart. It's very similar to the Brahma Viharas, where we wonder, well, what's it doing for the person I'm wishing well? But that depends on the karma of that person and what state they are to receive it. It's very similar with generosity. You know, we can give something, and it's not received. And sometimes that can hurt. But what really matters is that we let go. Being in Burma um, is, a, is a quite a teaching for the differences in our culture around uh, the valuing of that particular spiritual quality. It's, it's like it's the most valued of anything there. Uh, and children learn it so young, how important it is. And I just see just different ways that it's, it's brought in. So that if we bring some school supplies, the school have has no supplies. They don't have chalk. They don't have uh, the local school where we, nearby the monastery where we um, practice. Uh, and this year, a number of people gave me school supplies like watercolors, chalk, you know, simple things, crayons. But I had a whole extra bag of stuff. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to try to get down to one bag. But it meant no clothes, no vitamins, <laughs> no this, no that. So I really had to bring two huge bags. Um, and it seemed, you know, when you're going through Japan and Thailand and here and there, that it's such a hassle. But when I got there, I felt like I didn't bring enough. It was awful. Uh, and Sayadaw Ulakana um, really makes a whole ceremony for even the most simple things we bring. And the children receive them. Uh, and this last time, it was so amazing to me because the school teachers and the children uh, were there to receive what we brought, but he also uh, had it on a loudspeaker over the whole village, just, just, just giving these simple things like a map, chalk, um, little things. Uh, and at one point, I saw that the school teachers were crying, and I thought, oh, they must have such hard lives. And then after a few moments, I realized, oh, they're not crying for that. They're crying out of... Gratitude. 
you know, and that just you really feel that things are received there, you know, that because it, there's such a um, ritual made out of that process of giving and receiving, and you see that it's learned from such an early age that it becomes part of the culture, the happiness of giving, the happiness of letting go. And the other place I see that is when we eat at the monastery, the two meals a day. These village people are really poor, and they bring food not just for the monks and nuns, but for us. And sometimes it's hard to realize that they don't have enough, and they're giving us their best for food. Uh, And so you're sitting there at breakfast and lunch receiving their food, but also they stand there and watch you eat it. And so all these people are watching you eat that are really poor, (laughs) Uh, and it's making them so happy. You know, they're just so happy to give that because they value the practice so much. You know, they respect the practice so much. And that's what being there is all about. It's like learning how do we bring this back to our culture. When I come back here, that's the, the desert that we're in, you know, is going back out to the malls and having that materialism so flagrant in our faces. But we don't have to live that. We can live more simply. We can be more generous. It's, it's possible. It's just doing it. In Hawaii, I think the symbol of, um, for me, of the generosity in their culture, because in their culture it's so strong again, strongly valued, is the lei. Uh, so these lei, lays of flowers, um, it's, a, it's a tradition there, but it's not just a tradition um, when you get off the airplane to receive a lei. It's like, it's so much deeper than that. There's a woman named Marie McDonald that uh, is considered a living Hawaiian treasure uh, because she's able to write about it and um, has written many books about the lei. So it's, it's a sim- symbol of appreciating and valuing um, love, generosity, but also nature. She says that the lei appeared in the fields with the farmers when they invoked the blessing of the gods upon their fields and crops. It was a necessary ornament for the dances. It was worn by a nursing mother. It was used in the healing rites of the healing priests. It was the mark of chiefly rank. It was offered to the gods and goddesses. It was a symbol of love and lovemaking. It belonged to the festivals and brightened up the routine of daily life as well. Children made them. Men and women made them. Gods and goddesses favored them. The poets sang their praises. I think of a retreat like a lay. You know, it's like we're all the different flowers that have come together and we've woven this beautiful lay. And it's a unique group of people that will never come together again. And then it it passes away. So a lay only lasts for a certain amount of time, and it takes so much work and energy to make them. When I first came there to Hawaii, and I saw the hours that people would put into them, and they might last a day or half a day. But in a way, a retreat is similar. It's like 
we have all this energy and work that we put to, into this. And then it's this beautiful coming together of love and generosity, appreciation and hard work. And yet it's ephemeral. This woman said that people often ask her how to make a flower lay that will last. And she said she has a hard time keeping herself from flippantly answering, bronze it. (laughs) She explains, it bothers me because that's not the reason for the lay, that it should last forever. What should last is the intention, the reason for giving that lay, the intention that went into it. Words can be beautiful, but sometimes I love you is not enough. If you say it with something as beautiful as a lay, you know there is a power in that. Generosity. Also, forgiveness is something we haven't talked so much about. The phrases for forgiveness are, if I have harmed anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask their forgiveness as best they can at this moment in time. If anyone has harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive them as best I can at this moment in time. And if I have harmed myself, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive myself as best I can at this moment in time. It's a really important practice. And for some people, they start with forgiveness. In Asia, the emphasis is always at the beginning of a retreat on generosity. That's just how they do it, generosity, and then sila, or morality. And then forgiveness is taught at the beginning of loving-kindness. But what I notice in our culture is that for some people, it's so hard to forgive that they close down and they can't, you know, that it just shuts them down for the rest of the retreat, thinking they should be able to do it and they can't. You know, so what do we do? Well, for some people, start at the beginning. If it works for you and if it's helpful, start with forgiveness. If it's better to do, you know, at the end of a retreat or five years from now, that's also just as worthy. And we have to be okay with where we are, or maybe we're in the middle there somewhere with forgiveness. If we look closely at forgiveness, whether we have hurt someone, or someone has hurt us, or we've hurt ourselves, we have to see that forgiveness doesn't mean uh, that we're condoning the action, or that we're condoning the behavior. It's just that we've accepted that it happened. We've accepted that that behavior actually happened. So it takes a very deep equanimity, a very deep unconditional acceptance. It takes a lot of wisdom to forgive. Uh, and it, it includes a real understanding that the human world, <laughs> each human uh, through their journey, will express greed, hatred, and delusion toward themselves and others. It's just part of being here. And that's why we work so hard to be liberated, 
But we will harm ourselves, we will harm others, and others will harm us because of the greed, hatred, and delusion. There was a time in my practice where a very deep, old memory came up uh, for me. Uh, And it was late at night. And I had such a hard time um, with this that I learned a lot about what I'm saying. It, it took me five hours to just remotely accept that that had happened. And I just couldn't do it. And I, I had the sense that that's what was my difficulty, that I couldn't accept that the thing had actually happened. Um, I also had this idea that I should be able to forgive. And just because I, I accepted that it had happened that particular moment in time, I still couldn't forgive. So that particular uh, karma has taught me a lot about forgiveness because the forgiveness in time actually started to appear, but then it would disappear. And then later on it might appear, but then it would disappear. So I started to sense, oh, this isn't a one-shot deal with these deep things. You know, it's like it's a process. And we're not often taught that it's okay not to be able to forgive. You know, we get this idea we should have to, and that it is something that happens, and then it disappears. It might, if it's something fairly easy, but sometimes the more difficult things aren't so easy to forgive. So over time, the compassion and the wisdom, that protection starts to seep in. And if we have patience, even the most horrible things eventually can be forgiven, or maybe not in this lifetime. And that's okay. That's just part of that person's journey. Before my last retreat, I heard an interview with a man on NPR uh, that really taught me a lot about this, too. Um, He was in World War II, uh, and he's from the Navajo Nation. And he spoke about uh, being captured Uh, and tortured. And he was actually, his hands and feet were nailed to the floor. Uh, That was one of the things that happened to him. Um, And it was just so, he he had gone through this forgiveness process, so when he spoke about it, you could tell there was no um, anger, but that he had taken a long time to heal it. Uh, So he said that it was much, much harder to forgive that man than to go through that experience. And it was just another really big piece for me around that process of forgiveness. Can you imagine that going through something like that and then realizing that forgiving would be harder than that and that's why it was so hard? And once he understood that, he was able to slowly go through the pain of of trying to do that, and he eventually did. So since uh, the forgiveness has been something that I struggled with, I was so grateful to hear that teaching. I think that patience is probably the most important part of our spiritual journey. 
no matter where we are and who we are, it's important at the beginning and the middle and the end of practice. And we can get so lost in trying to figure out where we are and comparing ourselves and judging ourselves uh, that we should be more generous. Maybe we're kind of stingy this lifetime. You know, and that's what we're working on. But maybe we're good at something else. Maybe we're good at morality but not generosity. Give yourself a break. You know, don't try to be everything. Just see your strengths and weaknesses and then start to work a little bit on the things that we're weaker at. That's, that's the journey, that patience and that slow determination. Rumi said, we're not ahead, we're behind. We're not above, we're below. Like a brush in the painter's hand, we have no idea where we are. At least remember the first line. We're not ahead, we're behind. You know, we're always catching up with ourselves where we really are, where we really are. That's, we're catching up with the patience and catching up with the patience. Where we are is where we're supposed to be. That's the teaching. Nature has always been a part of life that has really been helpful for me to find the spaciousness and equanimity when I can't find it within myself and the patience. Uh, So hopefully here you've learned to value the chipmunks as well as the staff. (laughs) The peonies, the fireflies, but also the teachings of the black flies and the mosquitoes. Yesterday I was, uh, went for a little bike ride and I saw a scarlet tanager, which if you know the New England woods, you don't always get to see them. And it just was on the middle of the road, just sitting there. And I was kind of going along and just, it didn't last long. But those moments of seeing a being that you really get to see, and when there's, there are these beautiful scarlet birds with these black, black wings, uh, and they're, they're just a treat to see. I've only seen them once before, but they were dead. I saw up in, North, up in northern Maine, um, there was a snowstorm, maybe in the end of May, uh, and so it was a, f- a freak snowstorm. And I think I counted 55 on this dirt road had died in this freak snowstorm. So this is the only other time I've seen one. So it was such a joyful thing. And you know those moments if you see a deer or a beaver or hear the crickets uh, or just the sound of the birds. They hold us up. They hold us up. Uh, and they're really something to be grateful for. But there's also the other side. After I went back by the scarlet tanager (laughs) that kept going, I saw this cat walking down the road, and the cat, you know, heard the bike and turned around. There was this chipmunk (laughs) in its mouth, you know, and it was alive. (laughs) You know, and how do we hold that? Without the mindfulness practice, we can't. You know, this world is a world where everything is struggling to survive. And we need that balance. It's like I went from that openness and joy 
of the scarlet tanager to seeing the cat, who the cat was quite happy and proud of himself. <laughs> and the chipmunk was very upset. You know, it's that <laughs> awful, awful range of joy and sorrow. It can be unbearable at times. And if we don't have that protection of, oh, compassion, oh, equanimity, oh, things are as they are, we get creamed. You know, there's that balancing the open-heartedness and equanimity. When we go back out into the world, um, that's the most important thing to remember, is that often, sometimes we are very open, but maybe the equanimity hasn't quite caught up to how open we are. I think I've had that experience coming out of retreat. (laughs) I don't know if you have. Sometimes it's more intense than others. But I realized once, finally, that what had really been shedded in myself was faking equanimity. And so that near enemy of equanimity, the indifference or the denial or the naivete or passivity, I had learned so early in life, and we all do, to pretend to act like it's okay. And we're so good at it, we don't know how great actors and actresses we really are. But we get a sense on retreat. (laughs) You know, we get a sense of how much we're not showing our aversion and attachment. Uh, So at first, sometimes when we come out of retreat, we might feel like we're more reactive than when we came in here. Maybe not. Sometimes you leave retreat and you are less reactive. Uh, But sometimes on the journey, we are. And that's okay. It means that we open, but the the equanimity just hasn't caught up. Try to have patience with that. It doesn't mean you have to let it all out and dump it. It means that you just give it space and patience, and you'll learn finally to be mindful of those reactions. That part of the journey is humbling. When I would first come out of retreat, it felt like I did have more (laughs) equanimity. And then there was a period where I felt like I had less. And I had so much judgment about my own practice when I felt like I had less. Uh, Like I was the one at fault and that I should be doing it somehow differently. Uh, So it'll keep changing for all of us and try to have that sense of it's really humbling. that spiritual journey is really humbling. And I find for us um, that there's some way and that that's kind of hard on our ego. It's like we want to be fully enlightened in five minutes and then go back to our life. You know, we, we want, you know, we want ourselves to get a PhD in generosity and then, okay, then it's over. You know, we have this relationship that's so narrow around the spiritual life. And a lot of it is just that we just haven't learned. We don't have that bigger time frame. We don't have that sense of um, it becoming a way of life. And that we're practicing mindfulness. We're practicing generosity. We're practicing forgiveness. That word is really important for us to remember.
I heard that um, after the Buddha died, that for about a hundred years there was no image of the Buddha, no physical image. There was just uh, a tree. That was the imagery used for a Buddha. If we think about a tree, a tree is very different than a flower. Um, a tree uh, gives us more of a sense of the long-term view. Uh, and there's a tree that Steve and I and Chandra, our daughter, planted in the early 80s in the back of our yard, a mango tree. And it's taught me so much about patience. Uh, the first five or six years, all of its energy went into its roots. Uh, and there was very little growth up on top. And then after, <laughs> I used to go out to it and say, why don't you grow, you know? <laughs> What's wrong with you? I just couldn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was Hawaii and things grew. Uh, uh, but it just didn't listen to me. <laughs> and then slowly the upper growth started to happen, but it still seemed very slow, maybe in 10 years. Um, and then it started to have these shoots of growth and flowers um, and maybe these little teeny mangoes, but they'd never get big. Uh, and I think maybe 13 years ago when we weren't there, we finally got 13 mangoes, you know, and the house sitter kept calling us. We were here, and he'd say, oh, oh, they're so, you know, mangoes. Oh, he'd be, they're so sweet. They're so delicious. Thank you for planting them. <laughs> and, you know, we got home, and they were gone. Um, we haven't had any since. <laughs> it's like 16 years. You know, and last year I had great hopes. Um, and it's just growing. It's growing and growing and growing. Um, and it gets these flowers, and it gets these little babies, and it, they don't produce. Um, and this year, we've been in a drought the past two years. Maybe, I think I started watering it you know, a little bit too late again. Um, but it's okay. It's really established. Uh, and our practice is really like this. It's like initial years, a lot of energy is going into the roots, the roots of mindfulness and the Brahma-viharas. And then there's a lot of um, growth, but maybe not the flowers, you know, that we really thought should be there. And then slowly, equanimity is like uh, the fruit ripening. You can't rush it. It's like that. it just takes time for the conditions to come together for the fruit to be there. But it will come. But then maybe you go on another retreat and you're, you're going on. We move on. We're not going to stay in the same place. Wherever we opened and got equanimity, um, we don't stay there. The practice will come together. It'll integrate. It'll stay maybe somewhat uh, constant for a while. And then it'll change again. And it'll be wild again. And then it'll go along like that. We'll finally get some equanimity will open again. That's the only way we get liberated. So when you think about going out into the world, try not to take just the short-term flower vision. Think of yourself as a tree, and that um, there's a lot happening. There's the roots, there's the great branches, until we're strong enough to hold the fruit. 
And the strength comes from the um, remembering of the mindfulness and the Brahma-viharas. But also don't forget generosity, patience, forgiveness, morality. So let's sit for a minute. Our duty is to love and to say goodbye. 